Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Lisa Briggs, the author of The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much, Dr. Taylor, for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm really just so honored uh, to be with you. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Absolutely. So I'm a, you know, a, a little black girl from the south side of Chicago, um, born and raised and um, grew up in the 80s and the 90s, right in the, as the war on drugs was really impacting um, cities across the nations and especially people in the city of Chicago. Um, I was a really shy child and theater really saved my life. Um, and many years later, after I you know, worked as an actor and a playwright, I had a chance to um, work with a, a group of women who were in a comprehensive drug and alcohol program at a program uh, called the Living Stage Theater, which was uh, in Washington, D.C., part of my my um, my adult, I guess, uh, acting career. I moved around a lot and worked in regional theaters quite a bit. And so when the opportunity to um, settle down and work in Washington, D.C. at the Living Stage happened, I took advantage of it. I leapt to it. Um, and Living Stage did um, improvisational theater for social change with community groups. And we talked about the real things that people were dealing with, were struggling with. And this one group of women, I'll never forget them. They were in a comprehensive like drug and alcohol recovery program and uh, mostly black women, uh, a couple women who were there with their mothers. Um, well, we would sit in circle and um, they could tell stories about anything that was on their mind. Often they talked about their recovery journeys and what it meant to heal. And at the time I was uh, like a 27, 28 year old young woman really trying to figure out my place in the world and understand these experiences that I had had and, and felt very much like alone in them. Um, like I said, I'm a, you know, like many people, um, I grew up during the, the war on drugs and while it didn't immediately impact my family with, you know, like I don't have a parent who um, was lost to the carceral system or had a chronic substance abuse problem. I do have family members like that. And um, there was very little honest conversation about accountability, um, about safety and justice and security at the time. But these women um, were having those conversations. And with them, I guess we all together realized that um, we had a lot in common. We might be sitting on opposite sides of the, the circle. We may have gotten to live in living stage in different ways, but we shared a lot in common. And... Um, one of the things that really propelled my interest in the role of the arts um, in terms of a healing practice is an exchange I had with a woman named Rosetta. Uh, we were all told to um, write some poems in response to a prompt that the facilitator that day, Rebecca Rice, gave. And I was an assistant, so my job was to pass out like paper and pens. And so I passed, and I did this every day to, <laughs> for people, but I passed out the paper and pen. I went to Rosetta, I gave them to her, and she um, looked me in the eye, grabbed my hand and said, I cannot write a poem. I cannot. 
write a poem. And I, I said to her, I didn't even blink. I said, yes, you can. You can write a poem. Yes, you can. And then I moved on to the next person and, and kept doing my, you know, my job. Well, I didn't know that um, Rosetta had never written a poem, but that uh, that day she would pick up the pen and piece of paper and she would write her first poem and that she would read it in class and it would be the first time that she'd ever read a poem she'd written aloud. And that that moment would propel her to become not only our resident poet, but um, really a spokesperson for her group and later on a published poet. And um, many, many years later, when I decided to go back to graduate school, I have a PhD in performance studies from Northwestern. I wanted to reconnect with her group. And she told me, um, I sat down with her. Uh, she'd stabilized in recovery with three other women. And she told me that that day that I opened up something in her, I affirmed um, um, what she, I guess she called the still small voice within her that wanted to write poems and had a lot to say, but had never been validated. And so, um, or affirmed in a way that it needed to be affirmed or was affirmed that day. And so that's how I came to this work. I've been interested for a long time in um, theater in non-traditional spaces, theater that's not about commercial success, but theater that really is a space in which people come together to tell um, the most powerful stories about their lives make them discussable, to make them um, available for other people so that we might collectively think about our human worth and value. And then um, how, pe how people um, out of those experiences, you know, transform their individual lives and then have, um, in some cases, impact their communities. So that's a very long explanation, but that's how I got to this work. So. Thank you. Well, in the introduction, you gave the reader a lot of statistics about the increasing number of women and specifically black women behind bars. Tell us more about that. It's um, um, one of the hidden effects of the war on drugs actually precedes the war on drugs. People usually um, credit Ronald Reagan with declaring the war on drugs, but really the story of mass incarceration reaches way, 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 way back to the early days of, of the American um, uh, experiment. Um, most recently, though, since the 1970s, Black women have been amongst the fastest growing segment of the prison population. Um, that's because of the declaration of the war on drugs, which transformed how policing operates. Um, so we moved from a a model that, of course, always targeted the poor, always targeted people with um, mental health diseases and disorders, always targeted uh, men of color. But um, with the early 1970s in response to Black liberation organizing, folks like uh, President Nixon and his colleagues, um, both, both sides of the aisle, uh, legislators and communities, um, decided that we would re-up the uh, use of the prison system and jails and police in order to clamp down on Black organizing, and women became a new target. Uh, part of that is because of changes in what they call gender-neutral policing. So if um, a call, a domestic violence call happens, the cops show up at the door. In the past, they would ignore um, well, they would ignore the call, but um, under gender-neutral policing, instead of trying to figure out who did what, they just arrest everybody. And then they walk around the house and if there's kids there or if it's a low income family and they don't think that the children are well cared for based on the condition of, say, a refrigerator, then um, usually women 
overwhelmingly women wind up facing um, additional charges that have nothing to do with the initial call. So as a result, Black women have been um, overwhelmingly the uh, impacted by this change in policy. There has been an over um, 700 uh, percent increase in their numbers between 1970 and, and 2020 alone. So um, at this point, Black women are overrepresented in the criminal legal system, um, but largely ignored. Um, they're um, assumed to be, when they are arrested, to be uh, criminals. And um, if they do not adhere to dominant uh, norms and expectations about appropriate female behavior or mothering practices, then they serve more time than any other woman. Tell us about the prisons and jails you visited and your field work. Mm, thank you for that. Yes, I spent on and off about 10 years, 10, 12 years working in um, prisons and jails, three in the United States and one in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, I, in the book, The Healing Stage, I don't share their real names. I use pseudonyms in order to protect the identities of the people who were involved in the prison art programs that I studied. But I can say that um, I worked in two jails, one in the Midwest, um, and then one in the Mid-Atlantic region, and then a women's uh, maximum security prison in the Gulf Coast. And then in South Africa, I actually followed a woman named Rodessa Jones, and that is her real name. I can share her real name. She's a San Francisco-based uh, theater artist and um, theater for social change, uh, theater for incarcerated women instructor. And she got a fabulous opportunity to go to South Africa, to Johannesburg, um, with the, the invitation of a group called Urban Voices and uh, Roshni Mustami to uh, work with uh, women at the, um, at the um, what they call it, the lovingly or somewhat lovingly, jokingly, Sun City, which is a maximum security uh, minimum, medium, and maximum security complex outside of Soweto. And there's one women's facility there. And so I went with her between 2009 and 2012 to um, do intensive workshops and um, help them remount, restage, expand, and perform their work on the national stage at the uh, State Theater in Pretoria. So, um, and then subsequently after that, I've, I've had a chance to work with some of the women who've been released from these programs. So that's how I, I, those are the sites. I do um, ethnography, so I spend a lot of time with people. Um, we joke then some in, in anthropology or performance studies that um, the kind of ethnographic field work we do looks like hanging out, <laughs> but it's really critical hanging out. I think of myself as a critical performance ethnographer, meaning that I'm interested in partnering with people to um, tell their stories, but also to uplift their voices and, and the issues that are most pressing to them. So I don't pretend to be a fly on the wall. I don't pretend that I'm able to um, understand their lives and experiences through observation. I spend time in each one of my sites, you know, participating in workshop. So if they were doing prompts about to write something, I wrote things. If they were doing exercises, if they were singing and dancing, I was singing and dancing as much as I was allowed to do in each site and as felt appropriate um, as sites move toward production. So in each one, in a small ensemble of women, they um, develop, write, uh, produce and perform a play of their own making to an audience of other women at their facility. And as shows moved from the rehearsal or the devising period, 
um, into production, I, my role would change. So I became more of an assistant director or sometimes more like a, um, a just backstage help. So helping people get in and out of costume or move props or deal with emergencies that always happen behind behind stage, backstage. So can you tell the audience, what does healing for women in jail and prisons look like? Give us an example. Hmm. You know, this, this was a really central question of the book. I was curious, um, based on my own experience as a theater artist, and then, like I said, at Living Stage, and about um, this idea of theater being a healing practice in a carceral space, in a prison or a jail. Um, when I started, I, you know, my assessment of why, my understanding of why women were behind bars was not, um, it was, it was different than where I, I am now. Um, certainly the factors that I talked about before in terms of the war on drugs, put them there. Um, um, this effort to end black liberation organizing, um, a real hatred about the poor, a, de a desire to regulate them and chronic substance, uh, use issues as a, um, as a pretext or a guide for locking people up. And in my original thinking, you know, like how does a theater program behind bars and poverty? Those were the kind of the questions that I was asking. When, so when I sat with people in workshop, that, well, I was trying to understand what, what did they mean when they said the work was healing. And what I came to understand over time was that, um, they, un, of course, everybody knows that, that theater is not going to end poverty. Um, there's not going to end homelessness, but healing isn't just about coming up with a snap cure. There's a difference between um, a healing process and curing something. Healing is a process of self-repair, and it's one that requires um, collaborative work with other people. Um, and in theater programs for incarcerated women, the first thing that people wanted to do is to be seen and heard and understood exactly as they were. Um, so to not have to hide, to not feel ashamed or angry. Um, they are, um, they needed, the, the theater programs became a place where they could, um, uh, in their loneliness and isolation. And so uh, one example of that um, uh, happened in this uh, uh, jail in the Midwest. Um, every day, me and the facilitator, who in the book I call Aaron, we would go and they would facilitate a, um, like a small group conversation. Um, you'd start off with some jokes and then uh, we would get to writing and he would always bring some a writing prompt. And it didn't matter what the prompt was every day, every day, once a week, every day, at least one person would reveal the story of surviving domestic violence or sexual assault. It didn't matter if the prompt was about um, flowers or if it was about the idea of a home or, you know, what you had for breakfast or what you'd like to have for breakfast. Somewhere in there, people, the story that people wanted to tell and wanted to have witnessed by us was about surviving domestic violence and sexual assault. And Aaron um, created a space in which they could tell those stories um, and the fact that he did it in a way so masterfully um, that they felt that they could tell those stories and be seen, heard, and recognized, but then also that the, the burden of carrying that shame, that anger, that loneliness 
um, was shared amongst us. We didn't, you know, poo-poo them. We didn't look down upon them. Um, what they learned in the process of telling and listening to each other and listening to how Aaron facilitated those conversations with them was that uh, they were not alone, that many of us in the room had endured similar violence in our homes, at our workplaces, on the streets. And so in the, um, like I said, healing is a process of self-repair, but it requires the support of other people. In order for healing to happen, you have to have support of other people. And so those um, workshop spaces became ones in in which such support was offered. Um, And from there, people could begin to do other individual work if, if they so desired, if they wanted to. So that's that's one example of how a theater program can um, offer people healing on the individual level um, and then create a collective space for people to do additional work if they so desire. You talk about rehabilitation. Mm. Uh, Tell us about some of the things that the women had to learn patterns and practices after being released. After being released, okay, yeah. So um, thank you for that question. Yeah, in the the book, I really try and um, following the interlocutors, uh, the women at these sites, I really draw a distinction between the idea of healing as a process of self-repair and rehabilitation as defined by the state, by the uh, prisons and jails, by officers, and unfortunately by like dominant society. Uh, what the women taught me that is that rehab in their facilities is is basically like a three-part kind of ritual in which you're expected to confess to whatever you've been accused of, um, express remorse, and then comply with officers' orders, whatever those may be. Um, behind bars, people consider a, a compliant prisoner to be a rehabilitated one. And because women's facilities are terribly underfunded in terms of programming, um, the theater programs that I worked with, they were all run by volunteers. They got some grant money occasionally, but really it was, um, people did it out of um, a love and a desire to support folks behind bars, to reach to reach and work with other women. Um, because uh, women's facilities, women behind bars are about 10% of the population uh, across the country. So if there's like 2.1 million, 2.2 million people behind bars any given day now, there's about 200,000, 225,000 women. Um, And because there's such a small number, there is not uh, adequate or ever really consistent vocational, educational, recreational, religious programming. So if you're going to change um, because you don't want to go back to jail or the the circumstances that you were in are intolerable to you now, um, you really have to figure out other ways of getting support to make that happen. And Sure, there's like an army of social services that are available, but um, that it doesn't mean that just because the services are there doesn't mean that they're actually helping people where they're at. Um, people need a lot more help than what they're getting, um, a lot more help than what they're getting, um, a lot more help than what they're getting. And what women who have been behind bars realize is that they have to help each other and themselves and that there are some allies, of course, out there. Uh, but that for um, those who went through the theater programs and stuck with it, that the theater program, even though, you know, it doesn't perhaps, you know, to some make any logical sense that that be the site where you get support. um, The theater programs told them that as they moved through 
their sentences, if they were long or short, that they were there on the outside for them. And so at each site, um, and the Medea Project is a really great example of this uh, based in San Francisco because they've, they've been around for 30 plus years, um, that once you get out of a correctional facility and you, know, you need a place to stay, you need uh, a new network, um, you need work, you need uh, just you know, people around you who understand where you've been and what you need, that you can reach out to them. And so the Medea Project, for one, is a site in which women have, uh, formerly incarcerated women, have formed an ensemble. And they, the Medea Project creates new work all the time about their um, life on both sides of the prison door. Um, at other sites in the Mid-Atlantic, folks... Um, have actually the experience of, of taking workshop um, with arts programs like the Living Stage um, propelled them to, you know, once they stabilized in recovery and um, got their kids back, got housing, they've become advocates for women who are behind bars. They do workshops um, very similar to the ones that I described at the beginning. Um, in order to uh, communicate vital information about what you need in order to really get help. Uh, because they know they've been through all the programs. They've, um, you know, it's kind of like they've done every Weight Watchers diet plan you can think of and imagine. Um, and they know what, what people really need. And unfortunately, the criminal legal system doesn't support their work financially so that they can make a significant and sustained impact but um, through the arts programs, they're able to, I like to say, smuggle in vital information. And then they are people who will meet you at the door uh, as soon as you get released 12.01 a.m. so that you don't have to go back to your abusive home. You don't have to go back to your pimp if, you're, if that's the, the configuration you're living in. You don't have to go back to um, your dealer. You can get a bite to eat. You can get some clothes. So... Um, what, that's something that I learned through through this um, research that the theater programs are just kind of the first um, introduction to a whole other way of being in the world for, for women who um, are willing to and excited by entering the work, becoming um, the storytellers that they naturally are, and, um, and, um, and learning day by day, inch by inch, how to live. Uh, a, a new, in a new way, and then from there to make a new world so that uh, people who are struggling with in deep poverty um, don't have to be struggling anymore. So we can, we can, you know, work together to address people's actual needs. I'm going to now go through some of the chapters and ask you about some stories that I found to be so interesting. In chapter one, um, you entitled it, She Was No Rosa Parks. Tell us about the story of Joanne Little. Oh, oh my, thank you so much for that question, Joanne Little. So um, Joanne Little, I start with her story as a way of uh, like a preface to this, a big history of, of the incarceration of Black women. And I named the chapter, she was no Rosa Parks because people in her neighborhood, in, uh, in her community in, in North Carolina in the early 1970s called Joanne Little that. Joanne Little was... A young woman in her early 20s who um, she was struggling when she was arrested in the uh, early 1970s on charges of uh, breaking into other Black people's trailers in her community. And she had grown up in a, um, um, 
like a blended family. She was had been a runaway. She'd had some some problems as a teenager and as a young woman in her early twenties, late teens, early twenties. She had gotten involved allegedly with a guy, much older guy, who um, ran a local bar. He also might have been the head of a burglary burglary ring and a prostitution um, organization, also. But she got she got caught and um, and held in the local jail. And um, while she was there, she was not, she was held in the men's section and uh, white officers, there were only white officers at this facility, began to sexually harass her. Um, They uh, peeked in on her as she changed her clothes. She, um, they would um, catcall and try and grope her. She was not the first or only woman um, that this had happened to, but uh, one night, she was uh, the only woman in the jail and an officer uh, decided that he was going to offer her a plate of food, um, a sandwich. And he came into her cell um, with his uh, a crowbar and he offered her a plate. And, but he also insisted that she perform oral sex on, on him. And um, to stop the rape, she got the crowbar and she hit him multiple times. And then she ran away. She escaped using his keys and she was on the lam for about two weeks and she turned herself in. Um, she told uh, with the support of her lawyers, the authorities and everyone who would listen that she had been sexually assaulted, that she had been raped and that she had only killed this man in order to save her life. Um, Unfortunately, because of her history of truancy and um, people's you know, assessment of her, her character, even people in her town said she was no Rosa Parks. So meaning that she, um, she was not a respectable woman and therefore um, she was not to be believed um, that she had been assaulted, that, um, that she perhaps deserved it that she perhaps had seduced this man and was now lying um, to get out of a murder charge, which at the time um, could have uh, meant the death penalty for her. Uh, So in this chapter, I um, trace a history of how women just like Joanne Little have been treated by the criminal legal system. And um, using archival materials, I learned that um, the low-income women like Joanne, um, people with limited family support and community uh, engagement, people who were um, been accused of or engaged in sex work and uh, crimes of poverty, like breaking into to trailers or shoplifting, that they are the women who we see behind bars. Um, more than 80% of, uh, 90% rather, of women who are behind bars are survivors of domestic violence um, and sexual assaults, uh, many of which occurred before they were 13 years old. And these are you know, crimes that no one is in jail for, no one has been held accountable for, and for which they were not believed, um, understood, or respected. Um, there's been no accountability for them. So um, even though people in the time that Joanne little um, case was um, in the in the national spotlight, you know, dismissed her um, for um, her so-called disrespectful character and behavior. She was actually absolutely emblematic of women who were behind bars then and who we continue to meet now. Um, her legal defense team 
was masterful though in in um, complicating the narrative that blamed her for the violence that she had experienced and um, ultimately was successful in winning her release on these charges. She was found not guilty. Uh, a huge coalition of uh, prison rights, uh, prisoner rights, um, women's rights, um, black liberation activists and organizers came together um, even Sweet Honey in the Rock <laughs> wrote a song about her, uh, the chorus of which goes, Joe and Little, that's my sister, Joe and Little, and on and on and on. Um, you know, they uh, her case um, is important in history, not only because of the, it got her free and it, this coalition became together, but because it set up an, a precedent that a, a little Black woman that a Black woman, a woman, a woman behind bars has the right to use deadly, lethal force in order to protect her life, even against a person in uniform. Um, that is something that had never been established in U.S. Uh, jurisprudence up until that point. And while I can't say that her case transformed the conditions of women's confinement behind bars, it certainly put a spotlight on it and um, helped people understand, um, some people understand, the who really is behind bars. We have overwhelmingly uh, criminalized low-income women, women of color who are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault uh, for what they do to survive that violence. So that's the story of, of Joanne Little. Thank you. In your chapter one, you gave us a history of race, gender, and inferiority. Can you give us some um, summary of that, what you were trying to say? Yes, absolutely. I think what I'm trying to say in that in that opening chapter so is to really lay this, this context out that um, we have a immediate experience uh, with the, um, the war on drugs and the rise of mass incarceration. But in that chapter, I want I um, unpack the idea that um, prisons and jails are a new way of regulating um, women of color, black women in particular. And um, let me see, let me back up. Let's, what's a better way of saying this? That um, in that chapter, I, I use archival materials in order to really demonstrate how the United States has always imagined um, the prison system as a way of enforcing and creating an inferior class, a criminalized class. So um, colonial laws, you know, uh, are in, as after the revolution, uh, get adapted into U.S. Um, U.S. laws, and they do that because the social contract uh, is always written. The Constitution being, you know, the most obvious or legible outgrowth of this idea of the social contract that people come together to um, um, to be uh, to um, regulate and to manage each other under a, a, a political system um, versus a monarchy in which that's you know the king 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 or the monarch is divinely anointed and so there's no way of changing that system but in under a, a democracy form through a social contract there's this understanding that citizens decide that they are going to live under some kind of form of government and that they have the right to transform it unfortunately in the United States our constitution is written by slaveholders and landowners who are just a very very small percentage of the total population and they create the constitution and the laws that um 
that flow from it in order to always um, cohere and to support and perpetuate their model of democracy in which they are the people who are <laughs> allowed to and empowered uh, to dictate um, everyday life. Um, of course, people from um, other walks of life, social economic backgrounds always push back. So it's never like a, a one shot, you know, one shot and done kind of situation. Um, uh, culture, society is a side of contestation over who's valued and what they're valued for. But the American system very much pulls upon colonial models, uh, colonial practices, and it uses the criminal legal system from the beginning in order to uh, regulate low-income people, um, people of color, Black and Indigenous people in particular, and later the growing number of, of Asian folks who arrive. Um, and to create this tiered system. So we have a, a, a tiered social um, social order. So we have a tiered system of justice actually that, that dates back to the colonial era. So um, we've always over-policed and um, under-protected um, women and, and um, women and, and, um, and black and brown people. So that shows up in, you know, a unique set of codes that were built into the um, American early colonial, early American criminal legal system. Um, the slave codes that have been in place, you know, we modify them um, only slightly, uh, but they, those slave codes that are in place through the uh, end of the civil war, they, um, set a whole uh, set of punishments that are only uh, available to black people in a set of crimes that are only available to them as well. So um, those are things from, you know, talking back to white people to not getting off the street to, you know, eating food, uh, so-called stealing from their kitchens, um, things that people would do every day to survive. Now I'm going to move towards when black young women started moving into cities, what were some of the, the risks that was involved in terms of they being criminalized? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So, um, you know, there were people always assumed that black women uh, after the after the Civil War, as they move, um, you know, fleeing the South, looking for new opportunities, that they're there for kind of nefarious purposes. The idea of an unregulated black woman would just um, it was intolerable. And so black women and girls could be. Um, harassed for just, you know, walking around, for being out, quote unquote, after hours, um, for wearing clothing that that white people thought was um, above their station, for, um, I mean, certainly there were some people, right, who, uh, for whom the underground economy, so like gambling and sex work or dancing or whatever, um, is the only way that they can make uh, a living wage. But um, everyday Black women, are um, also a subject to these um, punitive laws, um, just outrageous laws, fighting back, um, living in a, cohabitating with someone uh, of the same gender, uh, being in the same sex relationship, all of these things uh, brought the ire of the, the growing policing force. So um, those are some of the, some of the things that, that women were subjected to. Um, yeah, and the, as they move out of the um, move out of the south and into growing cities and urban areas. Now you talk about Cynthia Scott and the police. Tell us briefly her story. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, Cynthia Scott is a, a great example. 
example of of this um, of the way that policing has grown up to be targeted um, to um, stop women's movement. So um, Cynthia Scott was a very tall black woman, um, and basically on um, early morning Independence Weekend, nineteen sixty three, she's in Detroit. And she's out with a a man. Um, like two, three o'clock in the morning, and she gets flagged down by Detroit police. They uh, whoop, whoop, pull her over and um, accuse her of solicitation of um, um, sex work. She denies it. The man that she's with, uh, first name Charles, also says, no, no, like th- that's not what's going on. That's not what's going on at all. Um, the cops do not believe either one of them. They... Um, go through Cynthia's handbag. She has some money, uh, $43. And based on that and her presence out at night after hours, they decide that she's, yeah, engaged in sex work. And so she, um, they try and arrest her, put her in the car. She slips them and and runs and um, they shoot her uh, three times, twice in the back, once in the stomach. She falls face down in the middle of the street. And um, I know that this is a difficult story to hear, um, but she dies on site in a way that's very similar to the police murders that we've seen over the last five, 10 years um, that have been videotaped. Her case is, is different though, in that a, a huge community of people um, in Detroit got activated around her case and said that they were not going to let the police get away with this murder, that the police don't have the right to to murder you, to kill you as you're running away. And they certainly don't have the right to kill you based on accusations of their suspicions that you're engaged in a particular kind of so-called illegal behavior. I mean, she was was murdered in the street. And uh, we don't often hear these stories about police violence against women, but... um, but hers is exactly that 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 is exactly um, um, an, is, is an example of exactly what actually happens every day. Women get targeted by police and they get uh, they do get murdered. They do get um, accused uh, wrongfully um, in many cases. And later on, people would learn that, you know, the police are actually um um, and often um, use their power and authority in the city of Detroit, as they do all over the place, to um, to solicit sexual favors uh, from women, so that they, uh, uh, you know, with a promise like, "Well, I won't arrest you um, if you do this, that, and the other for me," and, and that they regularly, um, on duty, sexually assault and rape women. So her story is one example of. Um, you know, how violence against women, against uh, young Black women, is um, not only happens every day, but it is uh, state-sanctioned. It's become an everyday part of policing. And it's one of the things that the women that I met were actively trying to stop um, in their various ways, uh, first by healing themselves, and then later on, where possible, by um, really engaging in, in activism to transform what we think of justice how safety is understood, and then to really rethink, reimagine, and, and in some cases, abolish policing as we know it. In chapter two, you talk about how to stage healing. Um, I thought it was so interesting. You found the 
parchment women's songs. What were some of the, the, the information that you gained from listening or looking at the lyrics? Mm, yeah, the Parchment Farm, those women in um, Parchment Farm, uh, Mississippi. Yeah, those women. So they recorded the blues um, <laughs> uh, in a sewing room and listening to their songs, um, in particular one by a woman named Maddie May. She sang so beautifully about um, just what have we been talking about, how um, her life was haunted by um, by violence that um, she she sings about a woman who who hits the road. Um, she's fleeing a house that's that's dangerous that's not supported. This is part of, not part of the story about women's migration to urban areas that we often hear about dating back to the early nineteen tens twenties thirties. But she's a woman who was fleeing violence. Um, she was was a woman who was seeking a new way of defining herself. She got picked up basically for standing around, uh, much in the way that um, Cynthia Scott did, for just being out in public, um, and then locked behind bars at Parchment Farm, which is a, a, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a penal farm where women work day and night, uh, doing laundry, cooking, cleaning, um, doing farm work, but also, um, her song reveals that uh, she was also, she and other women were expected to do sexual favors, to do sex work behind bars. That was part of their punishment. And um, the end of the song, it, it concludes with these lyrics about how she um, she had a baby and it had blue eyes. It had a, she had a baby and it's, she had blue eyes. And um, she sees the captain, by which she means the captain of the um, um the correctional officers, like the team that's working there, uh, hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. So it, there's a sense of haunting um, in the song. And what I learned from it is, is this vital information about how women get um, get targeted by the criminal legal system, how it um, seeks to regulate their behavior, and then what punishment means for them. Um, there's also a sense, though, in that song, and Angela Davis talks about this in her evaluation or assessment of this song, that um, within that song, there is a, a hint of a threat that you can keep hanging around, but I'm going to do something about it. And that is a really important part of the experiences um, of women behind bars, that they move from a feeling that there's nothing that they can do about their circumstances, but a desire to make change, to understanding that they do have, there are options for them. They can, they can change. They may not change in ways that the police system, the courts value and recognize as being important or worthy, but this cannot um, persist. They do not want, they, part of their healing process is understanding they're not gonna pass this stuff on to other people. They're not gonna allow this, these, um, this violence to continue. They're not gonna harm themselves. They're not gonna harm other people and they're gonna do what they can to stop, to stop the harm um, um, that they have, they have uh, endured from um, occurring for other people. In the chapter labeled Bad, 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 Bad Women, Midwestern, what was the central thing that you gained from going there and meeting the people? Mm, mm, that was the first place that I went to. Um, that's where I spent 18, 18 months um, with them every week, every Friday morning with Aaron, the young man who I, I spoke about earlier. Um, I think one of the big takeaways was definitely that um, 
that um, healing for them, the thought that I think as, as I said earlier, that healing is not a finding a cure. It's a series of steps. And that the first one, one of the first ones is um, recognizing the sense of isolation, the fear, the loneliness that um, in order for people to, to heal that, that healing is ending that loneliness healing is, is not a one shot kind of story or narrative or cure, but a, a whole process of self-repair. And so really the idea of, of healing being a process of repair, something that um, people will need to do for themselves and, and together. I think that's one of the biggest things that I took away and that ending loneliness and isolation is, is healing. The chapter entitled The Pink Dress, Big Water Maximum Security Prison for Women on the Gulf Coast. What was the warden's expectation for the women? Oh, that one. Gosh, big water. Man, oh, so that one's in, um, as you might imagine from the name, it's in the Gulf Coast. And so Southern state, but not, not, you know, not alone in this expectation articulated by the warden that women who are behind bars act like um quote unquote, nice ladies. So that they, um, and by, he meant by that, that they were uh, upstanding, respectable Christian ladies who um, didn't, um, who, who, you know, married nice men and had, <laughs> had loving children and were flawless in their self-presentation. He, uh, when he got hired, um, should have known, but, um, that of course, that there's, uh, you know, when we're talking about incarcerating women, we're talking about incarcerating every kind of woman. Um, so there was a significant number, as there are in most facilities, of women who um, who are um, transgender, who people who are engaged in same-sex relationships, people who are lesbians. And he, though, wanted women to um, act in, in ways that were just um, ridiculous. His expectations about what a proper lady was was just so grounded in kind of a myth about a, a, a good upstanding uh, woman that, that I think very few of any women have ever been able to actually um, achieve. Um, and, and if they have in many places at, at great cost to themselves. Uh, what he encountered was a, 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 a group of butch lesbians who were... Um, he thought causing all kinds of disruption behind bars. And sometimes people do do that, right? There are some dangerous people behind bars, uh, but as in everywhere, people get into conflicts with people who they know um, and have and, and um, can't resolve conflicts in other ways. So there was no more, you know, messing around going on there uh, than any other place, but uh, corrections lore dictates that says that, um, it's um, women who engage in same-sex relationships are the causes of all problems. And this is something that goes back you know, hundreds of years that it's the so-called prison lesbian, the aggressive prison lesbian who disrupts operations, who seduces innocent white women into um, lives of crime. Um, and so, yeah, he found a group of women there who were wearing their clothes in a, a two, what he called a two masculine fashion and engaged in same-sex relationships. And so he stripped them, this group of black women, and forced them to wear what he called the pink dress, which was like a pink moo-moo kind of thing. It was a bed sheet basically with a, a head, uh, a hole for the head cut out. But um, when women 
who were forced to wear that dress showed up at drama club. I mean, first, admittedly, everybody like fell out laughing because it was so ridiculous. Um, but then uh, they had a, a, a really pointed, poignant series of conversations about um, what this punishment was doing to them. So it, you know, it was destroying people's sense of their safety, their self-esteem. Um, it was separating them from really vital networks that they needed behind bars. And I don't just mean like, you know, uh, relationships, but, but in order, like sexual relationships, um, but in order to survive, people have to form communities everywhere. That's part of human nature. And behind bars, people rely upon each other to figure out how day-to-day life happens and then to get things that you need. So in, in exchange, I'll do, you know, um, I'll give you a pack of ramen noodles in exchange for like a cigarette or whatever it is. Um, you know, these are systems of exchange. People do this everywhere. And being in the pink dress, um, uh, which was such a prominent signal of, of, uh, that you were, um, you know, uh, violating uh, prison norms meant that that some of those networks got got interrupted, and so the the pink dress group decided that they were um, they were not having it, and so they figured out a very subtle way of incorporating the the uh, their stories, their experiences about the pink dress into a performance piece that ultimately wound up transforming how the um, the uh, that that punishment process it contributed to it i think he actually probably figured out that it, you can't use uniforms to um punish people in that way that he he set out but um but yeah the pink dress is a story about um those uh, gender norms and expectations and um and their um their efforts to push back upon the the limiting narrative and dialed story about them to say that, you know, what it means to be a woman is much, where people are women, they're not dresses. Now, you travel to South Africa. What did you find once you got there and once you studied that program? Right, so the women's, the uh, Sun City, they call the prison in, jo- in Johannesburg. It, you know, the women there were very similar to the women that I had seen in other sites in the U.S. Overwhelmingly Black women, beautiful, there for crimes of poverty. Um, so, uh, but unlike in the U.S. where people are primarily there for like sex work, shoplifting, chronic uh, problematic substance use, the people in South Africa. Africa. They were there for shoplifting, but they were also there for like armed robbery. Um, they were there for carjacking in larger numbers than in the U.S. sites. And they were overwhelmingly not drug users. They were the mules. They were women who had been recruited by um, an international uh, drug organization to travel to Brazil, Afghanistan, Poland, um, wherever um, drugs were being uh, manufactured. And um, they carried those uh, um, drugs back to South Africa for subsequent uh, sale and distribution. So it was a very kind of different profile. But um, like in the U.S., there is no services, no support, no networks. Um, They really wore threadbare clothing um, in a way that was shocking and deeply disturbing. Um, I will say, though, that in South Africa, um, they had, a, um, in many ways, a much more hopeful sense of what was possible for women behind bars. When you finished your sentence, you were done with your sentence. You didn't have to go on like uh, external monitoring with an ankle bracelet. There wasn't parole, probation. 
mm-mm, you did your days and then you were out. Um, there was also a sense that, you know, that, that um, the, it was much clearer, I think, that the um, historic and ongoing legacy of the apartheid regimes of the system of racial oppression put into place by white supremacist colonists in the early 20th century and, and then over overthrown um, by um, black activists um, in the early 1990s and then um, truly transformed with the institution of a new constitution and the election of like of Nelson Mandela in the early 1990s that um, they understood that that legacy of over 200 years of varying levels of colonial white supremacist oppression had impoverished people deeply that and so uh, when they locked people up I mean they there was also a, a sense um, that um, people understood this is poverty this is racism at work. Uh, there was still a lot of the Christian kind of evangelical message about penance and, um, you know, confessing and expressing remorse. And if you just act, comply with officers' orders, you'll be, you know, rehabilitated. But there was also this counter dialogue going on there, uh, really in earnest, that the women were involved in um, about, you know, what do we really need to change and that this what's offered to us is not sufficient. This is not changing our lives. We're putting our money and our resources in absolutely the wrong place. Um, and so when they created shows, they told their, their show, Serious Fun at Sun City, tells a story about, yeah, transit, uh, transnational drug, transatlantic drug trafficking, as well as uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, but then also about um, uh, white supremacy and um, and how um, white colonists uh, immiserated Black communities and continue to steal from them. You talk about your experience with Lolo and what you gained from that interaction. Tell us about that. The chapter, it's been my healing to tell the dirty truth. Yeah, Lolo. Lolo was a woman who actually, um, I met her many, many years ago in... Um, in the same program where I met Rosetta and Lolo was my guide um, in so many ways um, to not only understand like the impact of a theater program or or she often did a poetry programs at the jail where, where she worked, but how formerly incarcerated women, people who had stabilized in recovery from chronic um, problematic substance use issues, um, how they could take the lessons that they had learned on both sides of the prison door and um, advocate for themselves and for others. So Lolo's story is, is really a remarkable one. I mean, she and this cohort of, of four other women, they kept themselves clean and sober. Um, they got a lot of great therapy. They got individual family and family therapy, but they also, the four of them made a commitment that they were not going to um, go back to the lives that they had led, that every day they were going to fight to figure out how to um, um, be healthier. And part of the ways that they did that was by making commitments to help other women. And so they went to Lolo and I followed her. (laughs) I went with her to the local jail um, to teach workshops that smuggled in vital information about how one, um, what people really need in order to stabilize in recovery and to heal. 
But she also took that message to Capitol Hill. She took it to um, uh, legislators, the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. Um, she and her um, her group uh, that I their pseudonym is the Healing Justice Mamas. They um, they created what are often um, you know unusual partnerships with organizations that I didn't think and you know that made a lot of sense with initially, but I. Um, she really taught me that um, that healing is a process that doesn't stop. It's every day, and it requires um, not only individual transformation but this community support. In that, if we're going to um, give people the resources that they need, then that means getting the people into in public office. It means telling those stories again and again and again, including the people who you don't think you're going to be an ally, because you don't actually know. Um, you don't actually know who is listening and uh, for whom this story resonates. I mean, we right now, yeah, think about Hunter Biden and the Biden family and how hard it must be every day for he as a person who's struggling in recovery to also be in the public eye in this way. Um, I mean, he may, like a lot of people, all of us, we make mistakes, we do things that are wrong, we uh, harm other people, but a part of the healing process is learning how to to be accountable to self and to others, to, to learn to really like and love yourself more than what any other person thinks um, and to accept your whole self, your whole being. Lolo and her, um, her group that I call the Healing Justice Mamas, they are, you know, um, they are warriors in that. They are fearless and their courage to show up in these spaces where they definitely could have been ridiculed, dismissed, disgraced, um, triggered, and uh, just... Um, it inspired me in, in so many ways and um, um, and it continues to inspire me every day. The last chapter, Beyond Incarceration. What did you learn from the Big Water Theater Program Summit? That's a, thank you for that question because that, that last chapter, yeah, it's a, I had a chance to go to a, a ritual, a ceremony um, a, um, a gathering, a summit, um, that the, uh, Big Water Theater Company, um, staged with some formerly incarcerated women. And then with, um, actually, uh, some of the leading political activists, uh, on this issue from around the country, um, what they were working on that was part of the summit though, was to free one of their longest, um, most dedicated members a woman who I call Ava in the book. Um, Ava had served five decades behind bars. Um, she had been there longer than um, the men with whom she was uh, convicted of. Um, it was a, a, a robbery that um, in which somebody got killed. And um, Ava had, was a, she was an elder. She was uh, a woman who the state was basically punishing for not only the crime that she committed, but because she had um, she had embarrassed them a few times by um, she escaped at some point, and then they recaptured her, and she served many more years for the escape than for the crime for which she was initially convicted. But um, at this summit, the group unveiled a handmade quilt that had the names of all of the women serving 
life sentences. And at the time, Ava was, was, was one of them. Um, and as it gets unveiled, though, one of the, the uh, facilitators of the, the drama club at Big Water, a woman who I call Jody, comes up to me and she says, you know, Ava's coming home. And I have this moment of like, I uh, total, um, I'm overwhelmed. I'm shocked. I'm surprised. I feel like I have missed an announcement because she says it to me with such earnestness, with such commitment, with such belief. I feel, I think that, you know, in the middle of the summit, I've somehow like I've gone to the bathroom and I've missed an announcement that she's actually been released. Um, she had not been released, but I, what I realized was that, um, Jody, the Big Water Theater Company on both sides of the prison door, and this coalition of activists and organizers, uh, dreamers, that they, they um, not only were they propelled by a belief, but they were committed to making a radical change happen. And I mean radical in the sense of transforming, upending the um ways of being in the world. And by putting out this declarative statement, Ava is coming home. Um, she named and she claimed that future for Ava. And I don't tell this in the book, but by the time the book came out, that is what happened. Um, Ava is home. Ava has come home. Um, and I, I went to a Zoom parole meeting for her and she did come home. She is home. Um, the vision, I guess, of that chapter beyond incarceration, it's though not just about like freeing an individual person, though. It's the the hope the the at the the root of the book and that I learned from the women at all these sites is that they really want uh, us to heal, to transform, to upend, to disrupt our normative ways of thinking about right and justice and safety and healing and accountability so that people can actually um, be accountable to each other in ways that are holistic and healing and that um, bring people home in the sense of like um, returning them to loving supportive, at least to supportive communities where they know that they are valued and that they belong. And that is the work that the theater companies are striving to do. And they do it excellently and beautifully, masterfully on both sides of the prison door. Well, I have enjoyed our conversation today. Can you tell us what is the next project you will be working on? Oh, thank you, Dr. Taylor. I have enjoyed our conversation tremendously. Um, the next thing I'm working on, like I said, I'm a theater artist. Uh, there's a couple of plays that I've been thinking about for a long time. One of them is called Afterlife. Um, it was very much inspired by the story of Cynthia Scott that I told, the woman in Detroit who was killed by police in 19, Independence Day, 1963. Um, Afterlife is a story about the 1967 Detroit rebellion, what some people call a riot, but from the perspective of women and girls who who um, not only lived through it, but lit it up. So <laughs> that's one thing that I'm working on right now. It's called Afterlife. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> been talking with the author, Lisa Briggs, the author of The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation. And people can purchase this book anywhere. Thank you. Thank you.